0: Welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast the only English language podcast focused on all things Venezuela. Each episode, your host Rafael provides the latest updates on one of the greatest ongoing humanitarian crises in the world, with guest features from journalists, subject matter experts, and activists to give you insight into what's really happening in Venezuela. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at State of Venezuela. And now, your host.
1: All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. I'm your host, Rafael. Thanks again so much for tuning in. We have a lot of ground to cover in today's episode. There has been a recent uptick in violent activity in Venezuela, specifically along the border with Colombia, where for the past month, the Venezuelan army has clashed with illegal non-state actors. We're talking heavy firepower involving Venezuelan helicopters, K2 bombers, and even reports of landmines in Venezuelan territory. As we're recording, approximately eight Venezuelan soldiers have died, 24 have been injured, and over 5,000 Venezuelans caught in the crossfire have fled the country into Colombia, exacerbating what is already the second largest refugee crisis in the world to talk to us about what's happening along the venezuela-columbia border we're lucky to be joined by an independent investigative journalist on the ground as we speak we're joined by cody weddell an investigative journalist based out of colombia whose work on venezuela has been featured in the telegraph and in the abc local affiliate station in miami in fact just yesterday cody your story for the station was uploaded on youtube which we will be featuring on our social media outlets as well of course So the timing could not have been any better, man. Welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast.
2: Hey, Rafael. Uh, Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So I watched the segment again this morning before we started recording, and hearing the excerpts from the people you spoke with, it's, I got to say, it's so tragic what these people are having to do to escape this heavy fire that they didn't even ask to live under. But it also occurred to me that some of them, when you were speaking with them, were probably also thinking... What is this Gringo doing out here? So, I want to start with that, Cody, because I know you've been doing this for a while. How would you end up focusing your investigative reporting on Venezuela for the past few years?
2: Well, I uh, lived in Venezuela for nearly five years um, and worked freelance in Venezuela for print and TV outlets and sometimes radio outlets as well. Um, unfortunately, two and a half years ago, I had to to leave uh, Venezuela under unfortunate circumstances. I was uh, deported from the country uh, actually held and detained and, and interrogated for, for a day and then deported from the country. And since then, uh, for about two and a half years, I've been here, um, in Colombia and still sort of covering the same sort of stuff, but from here in Colombia, um, and of course, focusing as well on the, uh, migration, the situation here in Colombia, um, of Venezuelans who are arriving, uh, here. So, uh, doing the same thing that I was doing in Venezuela, but, uh, just over here and next door.
1: Yeah, for those of you who don't know, uh, Cody caused quite an international stir back in 2019 when a group of Venezuelan officers raided his apartment with a court order to arrest him for treason and espionage. And funny enough, I don't know if you were able to catch the very first episode of our show, Cody. The first person that I interviewed was also arrested for the same thing. I don't know if you were able to catch that episode with was uh, who was it? It was Joshua Collins.
2: Ah, Joshua. Yeah, I've, I've never met him in person, but we've I've spoke to him um, online and and on WhatsApp. I saw yeah, I saw his story. That was pretty incredible. I think it was in Maikau where he was arrested, and the soldier sort of came over the border to to take him into custody. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was. Um, th- that's exactly what it was. I'm going to post links for those of you listening to Cody's story so that it doesn't detract necessarily from the subject matter of today. But I highly recommend hearing about his story because he was detained for over 24 hours and then you were released, put on a plane to Miami, and effectively deported from Venezuela. So unfortunately, you and uh, Joshua both, your stories overlap in the sense that you both ended up having to meet or get acquainted with the Venezuelan armed forces under pretty unfortunate circumstances. But thankfully, you were able to make it out OK and you're able to continue to do your work.
2: Yeah, thankfully. If, if, yeah, uh, I was able to, to make it out. And, and that was obviously my worry was to continue to be detained, uh, detained there um, and, and sort of held for a, a long amount of time. Um, unfortunately, of course, can't return to Venezuela for now, um, but uh, happy to be doing the same thing over here.
1: Yeah, you've been doing this for a while even even in spite of your leaving. So, it's it's pretty commendable that you've been covering what's been going on on the ground in Colombia. And actually before we get to the conflict on the border, I kind of want to put into perspective how much this is really affecting Colombia. As we've mentioned here on the show several times, the Venezuelan refugee crisis is the second worst in the world, right behind Syria. And Colombia has really taken the brunt of all of this. They've taken in over 2 million Venezuelans over the past five or six years, which, you know, compared to Colombia's population of 51 million, is a massive influx that Colombians are seeing unfold very quickly. So, Cody, I know you've been there for a while. I think you're based in Bogota right now. So, Describe for us, if you could, what you've been seeing on the ground as far as migrants trying to adjust to a new life in Colombia.
2: Well, it's really part of daily life here in Colombia now. It's something that is so much part of the daily routine that, you know, if you live here, you don't really even think about it anymore. But when you leave your home here in Bogota or really anywhere in the country, you know, you can't walk a few blocks without running into people. And you can tell when when they're Venezuelans. Um, and a lot of times they'll ask for money or they'll ask for for food. And so uh, Colombia really is, I mean, overwhelmed. There's, there's no other way to put it. Um, and Colombia hasn't received the funding um, that, for example, in Syria, um, I, I don't have the specific statistics um, on hand, but the difference between funding per migrant is astronomical between Syria and Colombia or Venezuelan migrants. So yeah, Colombia is just re- really struggling to, to take these people in. And, and I think Colombians have, have tried to, to do the best they can, but they're just not receiving um, the resources that they need.
1: Yeah, I actually, I've, I looked up that figure as we were discussing this. And even though the figure is comparable to the number of refugees from Syria since their civil war began back in, I want to say, 2011, there is a significant gap with respect to the to the funding, as you correctly point out, that the international community has provided to host Venezuelans. So to put that figure into perspective, listeners, Syria has had 6.6 million people leave. And until 2020, that amount of funding to refugees as a whole has been $20.8 billion or $3,150 per person. In comparison, Venezuela has had in just half that time, 5.3 million people leave the country. So in the past five or six years, right? And in comparison to that 20.8 billion, Venezuelans have been funded just $1.4 billion or $265 per person. So as this ends up exacerbating this situation... I mean, to call it a situation or a crisis that's underfunded, I would say is an understatement, right?
2: Yeah, definitely. There's, there's, there's no doubt about that. I mean, these people need um, health services, they need uh, education services, they need housing. um, And there's just not, there's no resources to help them. And so, um, for the most part, I mean, they're living on the street. They're, if you go to plazas or, or, or town squares in on border town near the border between Colombia and Venezuela, it's just uh, full of Venezuelans. I mean, they sleep there and then they wake up and then they try to sell like um, like candy or anything they can. They just try to make a few you know a few pesos every day and that's sort of their daily life and they uh, they live in that plaza.
1: It's really sad. Um, It's been going on for a while. And and like we were saying before the show started, I just, you know, there's there's no sign of it getting any better. In fact, this situation is only making it even worse. So let's get right into it. Like we mentioned in the opening of the show, over 5000 people have crossed the border into Colombia from that specific area in Venezuela that has seen combat along the Venezuela-Colombia border. So, Cody, help us make sense of this. Who exactly are these non-state actors that are involved in this conflict? And how exactly did all of this start?
2: Well, uh, there's no way to be 100% sure about what's going on just because the Venezuelan government isn't uh, truthful or or we can't believe what they say. Um, But based on reports uh, here in Colombia, uh, in local media and sources within Uh, you know, intelligence services here in Colombia. What we believe is happening um, is that a group of FARC dissidents, these are people who did not accept the peace accord here in Colombia, and so they remain uh, sort of fighting in this uh, civil war or against the Colombian government. A block of those people has separated from um, their leaders. Um, It's the 10th block there in Apure State, uh, Venezuela's Apure a State. And those leaders, Jesús Santrich and Iva Marquez, are protected in Venezuelan territory by Nicolás Maduro. And so now that this bloc has separated uh, from their leaders, uh, we don't know why, the Venezuelan military is uh, going after them, attacking them, and trying to root them out of this, this area um, however they can. And, and the Venezuelan military has been according to the accounts on the ground of these people who are fleeing has been very aggressive um, and also going after civilians because, you know, they don't know who is a guerrilla fighter, or who 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 are the people who specifically um, belong to this group. So uh, they're even like going after people who have collaborated with the guerrillas in the past. And basically, this whole community has collaborated with them because they sort of live among them. So um that's why these people are fleeing because the venezuelan armed forces are being so aggressive in their in this campaign against these these guerrillas
1: right just to quickly recap these groups they're a farc unit right and they are a subsection that essentially splintered from the original revolutionary armed forces of colombia or farc as the acronym is known my Colombian listeners are all too familiar with the um, with the history, the unfortunate history of the FARC in the country. It's basically a Marxist paramilitary organization that for decades was occupying vast swaths of Colombian territory and financing their activities through kidnapping, extortion, and all types of other illegal activity until, I want to say, you said 2016, right?
2: Yeah, 2016 was where the, the signing of the Peace Accords, I believe. Yeah. So most of that group um, accepted the Peace Accords and for the most part, the the Civil War with the FARC ended there.
1: Yeah, exactly. There was a part of the FARC that I guess took a different route from the the other portion of the FARC that took the political road, if you will. And so they've gone into Venezuela seeking refuge that was sort of greenlit by the Maduro regime and to some extent the Chavez regime because Chavez had really struck that alliance or those um, those friendly relations with the FARC prior to the peace process. And I'm really curious if you've heard on the ground, Cody, if there's any reason why this specific location is relevant or maybe why it's in this part of the country that this is happening because you said that this is in Apure, right?
2: Yeah, this is a PURE state in Venezuela, Arauca department in Colombia. I mean, almost certainly it has to do with the drug trade. This is a significant um, route for uh, the drug trade. So um, I would be pr- I'm pretty confident in saying that's probably the, the main reason that th- that is happening in this area.
1: You're probably right. I can only imagine that's probably what it is. Um it's not just the FARC. There's also the ELN, which is another subset of Colombian irregulars, to put it lightly, that are involved in that same theater, if you will, of drug trafficking, extortion, kidnapping. And it it really comes at the expense of the Venezuelans that are living there. Because like we mentioned, even though it's sparsely populated, they're having to leave in droves because of the heavy gunfire. Talk to us if you could about maybe some of the conversations that you had with the people that were arriving. Uh, First of all, how did they arrive? Did they walk? And were there any stories that they told you that particularly stood out to you?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting because um, this used to, this situation used to happen, but uh, reversed, right? So Colombia dealt with its civil war uh, for so long. And this area was also sort of a hotbed of violence, but on the Colombian side. And so, it's strange to hear people talk about arriving to Arauquita, Colombia for uh, safety when it used to be that Colombians would flee over to Venezuela uh, because of the violence in Colombia. And so now that situation is reversed and these people, yeah, they're arriving on um, canoes that, uh, well, they call them canoes. It's more like a, like a fishing boat. um, And they sort of pack people in there, uh, you know, maybe 50 people per boat um, and They come over, they're coming over to the the Colombian side. um, And basically they're saying that the Colombian, uh, the the Venezuelan military, like I said, is being very aggressive with the locals, uh, looting homes, stealing things, even uh, extrajudicial killings. Um, Of course, there's no way to confirm that, but that's the rumor that is circulating among um, these uh, refugees. Uh, They say they've heard stories about Uh, extrajudicial killings, and then the people being dressed up as fart gorillas as sort of um, a false positive um, kill by the Venezuela military. So they're really terrified, especially at night. And so some of the people will go back over to Venezuela during the day. A lot of them have animals or uh, other things that need uh, attending in Venezuela. And so they'll go feed their animals, or they'll go uh, check on loved ones if loved ones are staying over there. And then they'll come back to Colombia at night. Um, a lot of these people, one woman told me that uh, one of the commanders, one of the Venezuelan military commanders told her that uh, their lives wouldn't be guaranteed at night. So uh, she just seemed very terrified. And a lot of these people seem terrified. And so that's why they're coming over to Colombia. And, and many of them are staying in these sort of makeshift shelters that the local government, the Colombian government, and also the UN are, are, is setting up. On the Colombian side?
1: It's really unfortunate to hear some of the words that I think line up with the general approach of the Venezuelan armed forces. I mean, they've uh, really operated under a premise of really having no regard for human rights. This is reflected, of course, in the report that was submitted by the fact finding mission last year that conclusively. Declared the regime complicit in crimes against humanity, these extrajudicial executions and instances of torture and all sorts of unspeakable crimes committed not just by the regime but of course by the armed forces. Yeah, it's really really sad to hear what uh, what these people are having to go through. Is there any reason you think why the Venezuelan regime, the Maduro regime, is acting now so aggressively when? This or these dissident groups have conducted these sorts of activities for a while now?
2: Well, um, according to Colombian reports, um, it's because this group of the FARC had a falling out with their leaders, and their leaders are the people who are protected by uh, Maduro. So this group is no longer protected by Maduro because this group is no longer... um, uh, is no longer in cahoots with the with their leaders, the former leaders, Jesus Santrich and Ivan Marquez. So uh, that's what the reports are here in Colombia. I mean, that sounds uh, like a good theory. It, of course, it's, it's impossible to really know what happened. Um, we do know that um, this group has attacked Venezuelan military uh, posts there in Apure. Um, so the group is being is attacking the Venezuelan military as well, so clearly some type of falling out, um, most likely with their leaders. And so I assume when their leaders give the order the order to Maduro that that these people are no longer uh, in line with them. Um, uh, that's what caused this this action by Maduro and by Venezuela. And
1: have you been able to see or hear anything from the other side of the river?
2: Yeah, I mean you can hear the explosions. The it sounds like. You know, every every few minutes you can hear sort of like a gunfire. It sounds like a machine gun type uh, type uh, of of gun. And you can hear like sort of regular explosions all throughout the town of Arauquita. Even in the, the shelters where these people are staying, they hear these regular explosions. So that's an incentive for them not to go back and not to cross back over because you can hear what's going on on the other side.
1: What about the other journalists who are covering what's going on over there on the ground? I know that uh, thankfully you're okay, and I think maybe some of it can just be chalked up to the fact that you're on the other side of the river. But for those who are on the other side covering the Venezuelan side, I think there have been reports of journalists that have been detained from other news outlets, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, in, in Arauquita, on the Colombian side, there's not really any security uh, worries or for journalists or for the people coming over. Um, the Venezuelan military is sort of respecting that border. Um, But for anybody who crosses over, I mean, I could have, I could have crossed over if I wanted to, but of course I wouldn't do that. Um, Those folks are charging maybe two bucks to cross over on the, on the, the, um, these fishing boats Um, and two journalists and two activists from, I think it's a human rights organization uh, did cross over. They were Venezuelans um, and they crossed over into La Victoria, which is in Apure State, directly across from Arauquita, and they were detained and I think held for for a day and a half. Um, so they didn't last very long on the other side. Thankfully, they're okay. They were released. I think they're back in Caracas, um, but uh, it didn't take long for the Venezuelan military to find them and 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 get them out of the area and uh, and and make people. Worry about them for at least a few days.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad to hear that they're uh, they're safe because I mean, hearing the stories that you that Josh have had to go through, you you never know if you're going to make it at the end of a um, of a confrontation or just coming into contact with these individuals. So, as the situation gets worse, I'm wondering if you have heard from any reports from the regime itself as they escalate the, or ramp up the operations in the area? Because it looks like they're taking this very, very seriously.
2: Well, yeah, they are taking it seriously. Um, the reports we're seeing on, on state TV, it sort of is like, uh, it, it shows them being successful, you know, rooting out these guerrilla groups. It's hard to tell really what's going on. Of course, we can't believe what we hear on on BTV, on, 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 state TV. Um, and of course they're denying the reports that the military is being aggressive or violent against civilians and locals. Um, but um, it, there's no reason not to believe the locals because like you said, the history of the Venezuelan military and what we know they've done and, and Venezuelan authorities, not just the military, it's other groups like the, the Fias and, uh, CONAS, which is like, uh, Supposedly, an anti-kidnapping uh, force. There, yeah. There's no reason not to believe the the locals based on the history of Venezuelan authorities. Um, but yeah, the the government is trying to uh, trying to get their own version out, and of course, they're denying denying those allegations.
1: Now, talk to us about what's going on on the Colombia side of all of this. I know that Colombia has deployed several thousand soldiers to the border. To provide really just security to that influx of thousands of Venezuelan refugees that are crossing that uh, that river, the Arauca River, I think it's called. Yeah. Um, what has been the response been from the Duque administration?
2: Duque has deployed, I think it's two thousand troops to the to the border area. This border area, um, you can see them patrolling the river, um, and they're they're sort of patrolling uh, the places where people come across. Um, otherwise, I didn't see much more presence of them in town, but I do think i mean Colombian authorities are are keeping a close eye on this um, to make sure uh, that the, the venezuelan military doesn't sort of violate their um, their border and also to try to respond to uh, to try to help these people who are arriving on the other side and and the u n has arrived as well so I think the, the focus for the Colombian government is mainly that, just trying to provide shelter to these folks who, who are arriving uh, so suddenly.
1: What also worries me, and I'd love to get your take on this, is just the fact that I don't see how there can be any communication from the two sides to come to some mutual agreement as far as how to put a stop to this, because as I'm sure you know, the Colombian government doesn't recognize the regime of Nicolas Maduro. They recognize Juan Guaido as the de jour interim president of Venezuela. So how would you say that impacts the, uh, the ability to find some solution to this as this just continues to escalate?
2: Yeah, that's a major factor. Um, I think that obviously there are informal channels, indirect channels between both sides. And so it's not a complete blackout of communication, but uh, at least officially, there is no communication or recognition between Colombia and Venezuela. And then the other question is um, the two sides in Venezuela, uh, this FARC, uh, the block of the FARC uh, rebels there and the Venezuelan government is there communication between um, those two sides. Um, there's been. Uh, One FARC block uh, that is located here in Colombia still has come out in support of this 10th block of the FARC there in Apure. So they have some support. So the question is, how long will it take for the Venezuelan military to sort of wipe them out there and for them to surrender? One would think that that wouldn't be, obviously, I think the Venezuelan uh, military has more um, firepower than, um, this particular block of the FARC. So, uh, but for now it just continues intensifying and, and the campaign sort of continues. I think it's been going on three weeks now.
1: Yeah, it's been going on for about three weeks to a month. And I think if, uh, if this worsens, it seems like the, the violence might spill into Colombia, and who knows what can happen if that ends up occurring.
2: Yeah, that's a possibility. Right now, the I mean, the Colombian side of the border, there's, there's not much. Obviously, this is not a super safe area because it is a drug corridor. Uh, but for the most part, there's no violence or fighting on the Colombian side of the border. But that's definitely um, a concern.
1: And not to switch gears entirely, but I'm also curious, I'm not too familiar with... Colombian politics. I do know that they are due for elections next year. And I know that, of course, the migration of Venezuelans into the country in droves is going to be a hot button issue for both sides of the political spectrum, if you will. So how do you see this set of events playing out do you think that it's going to be taken more seriously or it's going to be addressed with a greater sense of urgency for the sitting administration in order to keep their position or they or is, it, is there like a certain type of position that they want to leverage I guess is my question in order to retain them their uh, their position as the incumbent party.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, it depends on if this situation continues escalating. Um, I've been sort of surprised at how long it has lasted so far. So I'm not sure if it will continue to, the situation will continue. But um, yeah, 2022 are the next Colombian presidential elections. And Venezuelan migration, of course, will be a huge issue. Uh, Recently, President Iván Duque took the huge step of uh, granting legal status to all the Venezuelans who had already entered. Um, I haven't seen any recent polls on that. Uh, I mean, he didn't receive a lot of uh, pushback from that, but uh, it is one of the major issues. And I think it will be one of the major issues coming up in uh, in 2022.
1: Before we started recording, we were sort of talking about what the general sentiment is among the Colombian population at large towards having such an influx of Venezuelans coming into the country. And while right now they've been generally receptive, which, you know, is very good to hear, there is, you know, cause for concern, especially when there have been isolated incidents of xenophobia in the country, particularly from the mayor of Bogota herself, that might end up Uh, worsening as more and more Venezuelans come in and impact the public health care system in the country since the infrastructure in Venezuela has collapsed entirely.
2: Right. I think that, um, you know, it's important to note that Colombia is not a rich country. Colombia has so many problems itself, Um, poverty, malnutrition, especially in some of the more rural areas. And so it's not like these two million Venezuelans who are arriving here are arriving in a in a country where the doors will be opened and they will have so much opportunity here in Colombia. And so, so far, I think Colombians have received Venezuelans. They've been welcoming a Venezuelans speaking uh, generally here, um, because for one, uh, there is a history of Venezuelans re- receiving Colombians during. Uh, the Colombian uh, Civil War. There's actually a phrase here. People talk about the um, uh, the Venezuelan Dream. Actually, when I was in Arauquita, people were talking about. I remember the days of the Venezuelan Dream, where people, where Colombians would go to Venezuela and they would have their Venezuelan Dream because they would uh, be able to be successful and and make a lot more money there. Um, so because of that, there has been generally receptivity here in, in Colombia to Venezuelans because a lot of people are familiar with that history. But as the numbers keep increasing of Venezuelans here and as the Colombian economy is affected by uh, the pandemic um, and Colombians are losing their jobs, um, as happens a lot of times, um, that sentiment, I think, is slowly changing. And we have seen more cases of xenophobia, of people rejecting uh, Venezuelans, Um And there's actually been here in Bogota, the mayor, Claudia Lopez, has had some uh, comments that were surprising uh, to me and to some other people as well, um, sort of blaming Venezuelans for uh, what is a perceived uptick in violence here in Bogota and in Colombia in general. And so I think that sentiment, uh, because of those factors, is sort of changing a little bit. We haven't seen sort of a mass rejection of the Venezuelan migrants so far, but uh, I think it's concerning how things have changed in the past uh, year.
1: Right, especially when you have situations like this that are only, as we continue to really hammer, are exacerbating it. In fact, there was a statistic that came out that I think someone had pointed it out in a testimony last month, appearing before the... House Foreign Affairs Committee here in the United States, they had mentioned that according to the International Monetary Fund, by 2023, if the situation remains unchanged, that number of 5.3 million immigrants, refugees, whatever you want to call them, people who have been displaced is going to shoot up to over 10 million. So we're talking about a third of the population leaving the country And they're not just going into some blank void or into the ether or anything like that. They're going into neighboring countries like Colombia, who can only shoulder so much of the spillover. And it's just, I don't know, long term, it does worry me how this can play out if the situation remains as stagnant as it is.
2: Yeah. And so at that point, um, Venezuela would, the numbers of Venezuelan migrants would overtake the number of Syrian migrants. Um, and even though, you know, those numbers are getting close already, um, I, as we spoke uh, before before the chat here, uh, the, the resources allotted uh, worldwide to the number of Syrians is much more um, than the resources allotted to Uh, Venezuelan migrants. And so, you know, I guess that has to do with the fact that in Syria, um, they're going through a a, a civil war type situation. But really, in Venezuela, uh, the economic disaster is equally as bad. So um, it will definitely require more resources and, and more attention around the world.
1: I suppose now we can account for some Sort of military campaign now playing into it, although it, it really has only accounted for 5,000 people, but still in a month is um, from one specific part of the country, one specific uh, portion of one specific state is particularly alarming, especially as Venezuela uh, begins to mount a more significant military campaign to try and oust this um this block of uh, FARC dissidents from the country, I believe. it. Um, I don't know if you've heard about this, uh, Cody. They, they call themselves, I think it's uh, ZODI, Z-O-D-I.
2: I haven't heard about that. What is it?
1: So Venezuela has for each state this unit called the ZODI unit. And ZODI in Spanish stands for, uh, it's a Spanish acronym that stands for in English, Integrated Operational Defense Zone. And they operate in different municipalities per state. And in this particular instance, it would be in Apure state. So the fact that they're creating this special military unit for this area along the border shows that they are taking this really seriously. But as great as that sounds on its face, um, as you had pointed out in the beginning of the show, and I think it's important to highlight this is an attempt to crack down on the very groups that Maduro himself welcomed into Venezuela to some degree.
2: Yeah, and he still welcomes them. Um, the the leaders of this group, their former leaders are still protected by him. And I think you hinted on another concern and what that is what if other fronts of this FARC uh, of the FARC dissidents in Venezuela were to separate? from their leaders. We would have more violence in other areas. Um, so it's sort of a precarious situation. What if the leaders were to separate uh, from Maduro and there was uh, basically it would be uh, sort of the Colombian civil war would just move next door. Um, so it's uh, definitely precarious and, and worrying that this could expand to, to other parts of the country as well.
1: The sad irony too is that According to the regime, I mean, in their eyes and their perspective, they're blameless. They've done nothing wrong. Even in this particular instance, they say that these insurgents are the fault of the Colombian government. So they are to blame for the unrest in Venezuela. But again, not only did he invite them into the country, but I'm reading an article right now that somebody posted where Maduro quite literally says verbatim that Ivan Marquez and Santrich are welcome in Venezuela. So, I mean, I, I just, I mean, we all know that this regime is a walking contradiction, but um, it, it just really speaks to the grim prospect of arriving to some consensus if they can't at least admit or take some responsibility for what's going on, like some, just some sort of reality check.
2: Well, I wouldn't hold your breath with that. Um <laughs> yeah, I mean the the response from Venezuelan state TV is pretty predictable. It's just basic propaganda, whatever suits them is what they put out. So there's no I mean it's yeah, it's very predictable. Um they respond, they're reactive instead of proactive and so they just sort of respond to situations um trying to um make them but uh, you know pre- present the best image of themselves that they can. so um, that's 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 what we've seen from state TV and from you know Venezuelan officials for a long time now.
1: is there any ballpark estimate, Cody of how many factions are operating right now in Venezuela not not counting, of course, the eln because <laughs> uh, unfortunately, my goodness, just looking at it from a cynical standpoint, the fact that we're not even bringing into the conversation, the ELN, but some of these other FARC splinter groups, do we, do we have some sort of estimate or idea, generally speaking, of how many of these factions are operating in Venezuela right now?
2: I think, it. you know, in terms of number of people, I think, you know, at least over a thousand of these FARC members are, are over there. The number may be a, a little bit higher. Um, I think... In total, there's a couple thousand of the FARC dissidents who are live between Colombia and Venezuela, and mostly they're most active in the border region. Um, in terms of like these fronts and the blocks, um, I'm not sure how many there are, but they are sort of spread out, I think, in the border region, and then some are still in Colombia.
1: So if it's over a thousand, which, I mean, wow, right? You know, that that fact in and of itself should be alarming to listeners, then I think it kind of speaks to or confirms your original theory, right? That this is probably some sort of, I guess, turf war, if you will. Because if he's just going after one particular subset or one faction and not all the dissidents at large, then it... um, I I don't know. It it almost seems performative, if anything else, especially as Maduro allows these other ones to operate. And it just maybe looks like this particular group went rogue and overstepped the turf of another group that happens to have the approval of the Maduro regime.
2: Yeah, they definitely overstepped some boundary. There was some unwritten rule that was broken Um some type of falling out. Um, and, uh, like we've touched on, obviously this, this response to economic interests, specifically the, the drug trade. And so, uh, the Maduro regime determined that it, it was, it was in their best interest sort of to wipe these people out. Um, there have been reports in Colombian press that there was a, uh, meeting between, uh, it was either Jesus Santrich or Ivan Marquez and the leader of this front and that that meeting was unproductive and then that's sort of what is set off this offensive. Um, So clearly there there was some type of falling out.
1: With the United Nations, I, I think that there's probably going to be, and I think I actually read it earlier this morning, that there's going to be some request on behalf of the Maduro regime to try and reach an agreement, right? a, a ceasefire or some sort of um, some sort of meeting of the minds, right? How do you see, and I think this goes back to the election prospects, right? How do you see the Duque administration or Duque himself responding to those sorts of requests if there is a former request for the u n to try and broker talks between both Colombia and Venezuela?
2: Well, I think it would be in Duque's best interest to um, to put an end to this the violence in the border region. I mean, this area is just really overwhelmed. I spoke to the local mayor there, and he said even the sewer system in their little town has collapsed. So I think it's in Duque's best interest to put an end to the situation and so these people can return to their homes. I mean, these are people who have lived through the Venezuelan crisis and they hadn't fled until this. So, these are people who who have their homes over there in Venezuela. Um but in turn uh, Duque has been very um pers- uh, insist he has insisted that he will not have talks with uh, Nicolas Maduro. Um so I don't foresee that happening, you know, some some type of official formal talks. But like I said, I think uh, behind the scenes, there is almost definitely uh, talks going on. And I'm sure the Colombian government is is working to find a solution to this so that the violence uh, that is affecting them so much doesn't continue in that region.
1: From the perspective of Venezuelans, I'm sure you've read that there's really, I guess, a sentiment of cynicism among the Venezuelan populace at this point with respect to the opposition, where effectively their role has been reduced to condemning every action that is taken by the regime. But based on what you're hearing on the ground, has there been any sign that they're looking to step up and play a role in any of this?
2: No, I don't think so. Because I mean, what what role could they play? Right, they don't have any. They don't have any power over the armed forces. Juan Guaido doesn't control any of the territory, and so the the people who are ordering this operation it's Nicolas Maduro. So, um, like you said, the opposition in Juan Guaido basically respond to the humanitarian crisis. They try to help with um, attending to these people. I actually spoke to some of uh, some opposition lawmakers who traveled to the border area, they are exiled here in Colombia. Um, and so that's sort of the role of the opposition at this point. There's, I, I don't know how Juan Guaido or, or any of his, um, any of his, uh, the people who work with them could, could broker um, some type of agreement in this situation.
1: Right. Yeah. Quickly, just to point out listeners, there are a lot of of exiled politicians and lawmakers living in Colombia. Most of the people who were most significant in trying to mount an opposition to the Maduro regime, and even back as far as the Chavez regime, um, they've all been exiled. And they're all sort of, uh, they've all sort of dispersed throughout Latin America, of course, Colombia being the primary recipient of all of them. And it it's Really sad to see that a lot of them mean well and they have good intentions and they want to try and put a stop to all of this. Not just this situation, but also trying to play a role in the restoration of democracy in the country. But like you said, you know, now every single institution is beholden to the Chavista party, the the PSUV, the Socialist Party of Venezuela. And because a lot of them have also been militarized, it's sort of in the interest of the armed forces for the state of affairs to remain unchanged. So while I don't see there being a war between Colombia and Venezuela anytime soon, it seems like there's no sign of stopping from this dissident unit that, as you also point out, has been doing this for over a month, and it seems like they're only getting more and more rambunctious collectively.
2: Yeah, and one of the big problems here is really a lack of information. The The Maduro government doesn't, I mean, has barely really even acknowledged this situation. They have put out some statements on state TV, uh, recognizing, you know, they've claimed they've killed, like, I think, nine guerrilla members. Um, they sort of recognize that it's going on, but it's not a situation that they're talking about a lot. They're not giving a lot of information. The FARC group, um, I haven't seen any reports of anybody speaking to them. So it's really hard to make a judgment about what's going to happen or even really what's specifically going on just because there's no information. There's nobody on the ground there who we can talk to. Um, basically, it's just the locals there. So really, we're just guessing about what's going on um, because it's there's just no way to get credible information.
1: It's really to the detriment of you guys, the the journalists who are trying to report on the ground, because like you point out, there's just such a uh, such an unfortunate uh, lack of information coming from um, coming from the ground. Um, even even me trying to like figure out or make sense of what has been going on. It's been difficult because official information is vague, as always. Um, the area from what I understand is not exactly, it's not, it's not the easiest area to, to access. So yeah, I think it's really up to journalists like you to continue doing the work that you're doing to try and put the spotlight on this, uh, on this situation so that the international community knows what's going on and just how severe the situation is. Do you plan on going back to Arauquita anytime soon?
2: We'll see what happens. I mean, I think if it continues to escalate. Um, definitely I think that it becomes a situation that, that can't be ignored and we would have we would need to go back and, and report there on the ground. Um like I told you, I think I I've been surprised at how long it's it's lasted so far. I expected this FARC front to sort of surrender pretty soon, um, just because obviously the Venezuelan military has more uh manpower and firepower than they do, but uh We'll see. The, the Colombian government continues to send more troops to the area as well. So um, it may continue to, to escalate.
1: Yeah, I, I don't see this stopping anytime soon either. So we'll have to depend on information from journalists like you to compensate for the lack of coverage for the time being. On that note, uh, let me end with this, Cody. How can our listeners connect with you online if they want to follow you and uh, the stories that you're providing on in the ground?
2: Sure, I'm on Twitter at um, at c o Weddle w e d d l e, and I normally post what I'm doing on there.
1: Perfect. So, listeners, I'll have that information posted on the episode description as well as the YouTube video linked to the report on the ground where Cody discusses uh, his interaction with some of the people that have been crossing the river and just giving sort of a brief synopsis covering, from a general standpoint, everything that we've gone over today. Some of his other works and uh, yeah please be sure to do so because like i said there are very few people who are on the ground seeing firsthand what is going on in venezuela at large of course it's not inside venezuela because as cody knows it's uh it's not the easiest task to uh to undertake at this moment in time but this more than suffices. So Cody, I want to thank you so much for your time today and best of luck to you in covering in the future. We, uh, I think as Venezuelans really appreciate your service.
2: No problem, Uh, Rafael, we'll be in touch.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the State of Venezuela podcast we hope you enjoyed listening to the story of venezuela as much as we enjoyed sharing it make sure you subscribe on spotify and apple podcasts to listen to other episodes and follow us on all social media platforms for more engaging content don't forget to share the podcast with friends family or anyone abroad reach out to us with any suggestions for future episodes at state at gmail.com or just to say hello we'd love to hear from you Until then, we'll see you in the next one.